You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Church Bible, it is, I think, on page 624. If you're using your phone or your iPad, it usually comes with an index and a couple of taps, and you will get to Psalm 100. And 29. Uh, we, are, we are not turning to the psalm out of the blue, as it were, uh, these Sunday evenings. We've been engaged in a study of uh, the 15 psalms uh, in the Psalter called the Songs of Ascents, uh, put together uh, towards the end of the Psalter as a special collection of hymns, uh, probably used by pilgrims on their way from different villages to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts, and then uh, presumably also sung and used uh, during those weeks of Holy Day. And uh, our minister, David Robertson, who is very sensitive to the needs of American visitors who are heading for the delights of Charleston, uh, seemed to think it would be a good idea for jet laggers who feel as though they're in the middle of the night that the evening series for a few weeks became the morning series. So in welcoming our visitors from Jackson, you see that we are, we are turning night into day in order to accommodate you and to encourage you. Well, let's read the psalm that we've just sung together, A Song of Ascents. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Probably at some time or another in your life, uh, perhaps in a museum, or visiting an ancient pre-Reformation cathedral, uh, you have seen what they call a triptych. A triptych is a a painting or a series of panels, uh, three of them, the centerpiece being supported by uh, whatever has been painted on the side pieces. And of course, in some places, you would even see a whole series of these triptychs that, taken together, tell an entire narrative. And these 15 psalms appear to be brought together in a series of triptychs. There are many interesting little design patterns built into the way in which they've been brought together by uh, an editor at some point in the history of Israel And one of the interesting little design patterns, it looks as though he has embedded into the 15 Psalms, is that they come in triads, in series of threes. 
And each of these series, the first panel is set within a context of trial, oppression, difficulty. The second panel customarily describes some spiritual experience. And then the the third panel lifts the spirit of the psalmist as he tastes more and more of the blessings of pilgrimage, the benediction of fellowship with God's people, uh, the cleansing of the worship of God's people, and the joy of hearing the ironic benediction that we have at the end of Numbers chapter 6, and in many ways forms the, the kind of substrata of what all of these psalms are about. They're psalms teaching us how an individual on pilgrimage enjoys the ironic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you shalom. And these words, blessing and shalom, punctuate the whole of these 15 Psalms. And uh, there is a little hint of it, uh, an antithetical hint of it at the end of this particular Psalm. It is the first in a series of three, and therefore having gone round this circular staircase of spiritual experience, we anticipate that this psalm will actually be about difficulties and trials, and it's fairly clear that that is true here, isn't it? This is the psalmist conscious of oppression from his youth. And although the psalm is put in the first person, isn't it? They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. They have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back. It's clear that something has happened to this man from the opening psalm of the 15. The opening psalm was simply seeing his own difficulties in his own village. But when he speaks in the first person singular here, it's pretty clear he's not just thinking about himself. Something highly significant has happened to him. He's using the first person singular to describe his own experience, but it's set within the story of the experience of the entire history of God's people. He's not just speaking about himself. He's seeing his own struggles, trials, oppression, enemies in the context of a much bigger picture. He is, as we often see individuals doing in Scripture, he is taking the picture of his own life and putting it into the frame of the experience of all of God's people. And when he puts it in the right frame, you know how sometimes you do this? You have an old picture and a ghastly frame, and you take it along to the framers, and he he puts it in an entirely different frame, and the picture stands out with greater clarity. And this is what the psalmist is doing here. He's no longer thinking about himself and the little picture of his own life. 
but he's become conscious in Jerusalem on this pilgrimage and the fellowship of God's people as they have rehearsed the great works of God in the past, that this little life of his and these oppressions he's experiencing belong to the big picture of what God has been doing throughout the whole history of his people. And so, his little experience of suffering set within the context of God's ongoing purposes make more sense of his suffering than he would ever be able to make of them looking at them in his own little world. Of course, that's the thing about suffering, isn't it? Uh, We vary in our ability to cope with suffering, but the one thing that seems to be common in people's lives is this, if they see there is meaning and significance, if there is worthwhileness to their suffering, if they can see it in a bigger picture than the pain, then they're able to endure the suffering and bear the burden. And the psalm obviously divides fairly simply into two sections, verses 1 through 4. You'll see there's a slightly larger gap at the end of verse 4, and verses 5 through 8. It's in only two sections. In some ways, I think it's, it's a bit like a, a concerto in three movements that lacks the final movement. And I think before we end, we'll see the reason why that is the case. Verses 1 through 4 talk about the history of the sufferings of the people of God. Actually, um, you would almost think that the author of this psalm was Gallic. Uh, It's only, I think nowadays, it's only when the psalms are sung in Gallic that the precentor lines out the psalm. We don't do that here. You know, we, we sing the psalms in English. But if you go among the gales singing the psalms, then the whole line of the psalm will be sung by the presenter, and then all the congregation will join in, not just at the second word, but go over the line again. And uh, that Gallic tradition has good biblical foundation, apparently, at least in Psalm 124 and again in Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Then let Israel say. It's like the presenter singing the first line and then the whole congregation joining in. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Youth, of course, younger days, is the picture of the birth of this people. Remember how uh, the Old Testament describes God coming and and carrying a little child out of Egypt, and how Hosea reflects on that. Out of Egypt I have called my youthful son, words that are then quoted of the Lord Jesus when he was brought back from Egypt after his parents had taken him there in order to escape the wrath of Herod. And he's looking back, they're singing together, looking back on the fact that from their infancy, from their birth as a people in the Exodus, right up to the present day, right through 
for example, the days of David, right through perhaps the Babylonian captivity. Their history has been punctuated by these seasons of suffering and oppression. And he's beginning to see that his experience of oppression fits into this big pattern that God has sovereignly been overruling and superintending in some of the most remarkable ways. And he describes the suffering, you see, in in three different pictures. In verse 2, he describes it in terms of being oppressed by an enemy, perhaps reflecting on what happened when uh, the people in Egypt forgot Joseph and began to oppress God's people and insisted that they make bricks without straw and uh, were determined to beat their backs. And then he changes the picture, not just people who have been oppressed, but people who have been treated like a field that has been plowed up. Look at the way he he describes it in verse 3, plowmen, he says, have plowed my back and made their furrows long. If you ever wondered why it is that the Bible doesn't come to us exclusively in prose, this would be one of the answers, wouldn't it? Uh, There's a difference between saying, people tried to hurt me, and expressing it this way, They were like plowmen using my back as a field, and they made their furrows long. You can can almost feel the skin coming apart as he describes this. And he uses an interesting little ancient agricultural metaphor that we may miss here. He says, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. Now, what's significant about that? Well, the furrows were long. Yes, of course the furrows were long. But uh, you imagine these ancient days when you have, uh, you have maybe one ox who is a pathetic little thing by comparison with our oxen today, and you have this miserable plow. And it is really hard work both for the ox and for the plowman to keep control of the thing. Want to think in modern terms? Do you want a self-propelled lawnmower, or do you want to use one of these old things that you had to push yourself? I mean, there's all the difference in the world. So, if today all you had was the the miserable old little push-yourself lawnmower, and you were elderly, what would you do? You would mow the lawn on the short sides. And that was what was characteristic in ancient Israel, in order for the, the, the poor ox to have a rest, in order for the plowman who's trying to control what's happening here as he tries to dig up sometimes unfertile soil. And both the plowman and the ox are able to get frequent rest because you're sensible enough to make your furrows short and not long but not here. And so, you see, within this culture, there's, there's a sense in which he's saying it's, it's not just that the, 
It's not just that the pain was great. It is that the the plowman who is causing the pain in the life of the believer and the lives of the people of God is so determined to cause that pain that he will make his furrows long even if it exhausts the ox that he's using. And so, this is a very dramatic picture of the suffering of God's people and the destruction that their enemies sought to uh, wreak upon them. And then in verse 4, he uses a different picture, doesn't he, of prisoners who need to be set free. Or perhaps he's carrying on the agricultural metaphor, and he's thinking here about the poor ox. Yes, you know, Balaam's ass was able to speak, but, but these people's oxen were not able to speak and say, I have had enough of this. Give me a break. And he uses this marvelous picture. I mean, think of it that he may still be extending this metaphor on the sheer relief of the ox as someone comes in and uh, pushes aside the plowman and takes over and snaps the cords that bind the ox to the plow. It's a, it's a picture of uh, God's people or an individual so beaten down they feel they can scarcely go on. But then God comes in, and He sets them free. And you notice, actually, there are two big statements in this part of the psalm that we need to we need to highlight and we need to hold on to. The first you'll notice rather marvelously is in verse 2. They have oppressed me, but they have not gained the victory over me. They have oppressed me, but actually I'm the one who has been given the victory. And the reason for this at the end of verse 4 the one who has cut me free from the cords of the wicked is the Lord who is righteous. Now, what does righteous mean? Well, to put it simply in Old Testament terms, God's righteousness as He expresses that to His people right from the very beginning is that He is absolutely determined to be faithful to Himself, to His glory, and to the covenant promises He has given to His people, that no matter how far down they may go, no matter how deep the suffering may be, He will keep His promise to deliver them and to rescue them. And this is, this is just in these kind of brief moments in the midst of this catalog of suffering, you can sense that the psalmist is holding on to these two great things no matter what is done to me, God has guaranteed me the victory. And God has guaranteed me the victory. And the reason I can be sure of that is because God has pledged Himself to keep His promise, to keep His covenant word that He will deliver and rescue His people. Actually, in a strange way, uh, these verses are like taking the whole of Paul's teaching in Romans 1 through 8 and, uh, and uh, putting them into a little bottle that contains the essence of God's protection. 
Number one, that he is determined to demonstrate his righteousness, which he does in Jesus Christ. And the result of that demonstration is that those who know the kind of suffering and affliction that Paul describes in Romans chapter 8 come up, as it were, from the depths and are able to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, because nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's another interesting thing here, something that again and again we need to keep reminding ourselves lies at the back of every single chapter in the Old Testament from Genesis 3 onwards, and that is that God has established a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent will constantly seek to destroy the seed of the woman. That's, that's the ultimate big picture. And uh, that's the promise to which God in His righteousness is always faithful. And for us living on the other side of the work of Jesus Christ, He has demonstrated His faithfulness to that promise by sending the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent himself. So, in a sense, the psalmist is, is able to see his life in, in the big picture that goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. But as we read this psalm as Christians, we are able to see this psalm in which the psalmist sees his life set in the big picture from Genesis chapter 3 within the bigger picture in which the promise of Genesis chapter 3 has come to a fulfillment. We know God in His righteousness will rescue us. How? Because He has given His only Son for us. That's Paul's argument in Romans 8.32, isn't it? If He's given His Son for us, if He's so determined to keep His promise that He will keep His promise even if it costs Him His Son, then we can be absolutely sure that we will be more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In some ways, you might wish the psalm had ended there for several reasons. You would get home to lunch sooner, but it is really a wonderful note, isn't it? And we're always glad. I'm always glad when I read a book that ends on a high note, and we're always glad when we read a psalm that ends on a high note, but actually the high note here is in the middle of the psalm. And uh, then there is a… everything else seems to be played in a minor key, doesn't it? Because he turns in the second half of the psalm in verses 5 through 8 from talking about the sufferings of the people of God to speaking about the destiny of the enemies of the people of God. So, he sets his life in the context of the history of the sufferings of the people of God. But he also, and this is not unimportant, sets his life within the context of the destiny of the enemies of the people of God. And you'll notice that this is quite important, that the first thing he does is to analyze their motives. 
These things, he says, are not happening by accident. And the other thing I need to know, he says, is they're actually not all about me. You know, that person who oppresses you. It isn't actually all about you if you're a believer. Those people who are antagonistic to the fellowship to which you belong, it isn't just about you. And you notice how he puts it. He, he, he gets right underneath all of the superficialities, and he says the real reason is hatred. He speaks about these people in verse 5 as those who hate Zion. And at the end of the day, when you scrape aside the layers at the end of the day, a highly intelligent, uh, apparently civilized, suave people, easy of speech, dig down deeply. Why is there this why is there this oppression of the people of God or of you as an individual? It is because man in his natural condition is no friend of God. Indeed, rather, he hates him. I told you before of the comment Kingsley Amos's son made at his father's memorial service about uh, the Russian playwright Yevgeny Yevtushenko saying to Kingsley Amos, is it true that you're not a Christian, you're an atheist? This in the days of the, the Cold War when Russians thought everyone in the West was a Christian and suave, knighted, adored novelist Sir Kingsley Amos snaps back. Yes, it's true, but it's more than that. You see, I hate him. I hate him. And this is what lies underneath. And although it is so painful to discover, actually it's such a security for the believer it's what enables me to, to say when I am most oppressed by others because of my faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, this isn't really about me. This is about you. And you see what then happens. When he grasps that, he's then able to say, so Lord, you take care of it. You take care of it. See how, see how different this makes the believer's response to, to opposition and oppression. Natural response, fight back, defend the cause. And of course, there is a time when we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. But uh, first of all, the deflection. Lord, this isn't really about me. And Lord, you will deal with this. There is some discussion among the scholars for a variety of reasons whether the words that follow are simply statements or desires. At the end of the day, it doesn't make a great deal of difference, but, but notice what they are. They're not words of personal revenge. They're actually forms of our prayer Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Whatever it takes, Lord, establish your glory and preserve your people. And he, he uses three pictures. Interesting, isn't it? Three pictures to describe the oppression, three pictures to describe what God will do. 
first of all, they will be turned back in shame. What's he saying? He's saying they look mighty intimidating. But at the end of the day, before God, they're simply windbags. Remember being driven through a fabulously wealthy part of a city in the United States, so no one knows where it was. It was Halloween, and in one of these fabulous pads, the owner had uh, got this giant uh, gorilla. What's the movie, David? There's a movie with a gorilla in it. Just that actually, King Kong, it was a King Kong, and it actually, thank you, it actually dominated this fabulous pad. And I saw it on a Saturday, and it wasn't Jackson, Mississippi. And I was driven to church the next morning. I was a visitor. That will make it even more difficult for you Americans to guess where it was. Drove back the next day. Somebody had come along with an air pistol and bang. And uh, King Kong. You see, God has got his air pistols. That's what he's saying. He's saying they look so big. They look so absolutely massive. But... uh, just project forwards to tomorrow. That's what he's saying. And see where King Kong will be tomorrow. Remember Psalm 73? The the psalmist is saying, why do these people have so much power and influence? And then he says, I went into the temple, and I saw their end, and they are put to shame for their hostility. And then he uses this kind of neat little picture in verse 6, May they be like grass on the roof. Now, what's the point of this? You know, I mean, we, you, you wouldn't use this illustration, would you? Even if you've got grass on the roof. May, may they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. With it, the reaper cannot fill his hands. See how this stands in contrast to the plowing, the plowing, the plowing, They're looking for a harvest of destruction. And uh, he's either saying or praying, Lord, make all their plans come to nothing so that at the end of the day, for all they have done, they don't have enough to fill their hands. They don't have enough, like even the gleaners, you remember, who were able to go around the edges of the fields, the gleaners could kind of fill their skirts, you know, with some grain, enough to make a loaf of bread and and carry it home in their skirts. That's what they would do. And it's a devastating picture, really, that these people are, are, are head on for success and intimidating any believer who gets in the way, at the end of the day, they've absolutely nothing. You go to their funeral and listen to what is said about them, and none of it lasts. That's the point. None of it lasts. So, now you see what he's saying. He's saying, you know, when you set your life in the context of the ongoing purposes of God in history and of the righteousness of the eternal God, you see that at the end of the day, all of that leads to futility. It's it's actually echoing the first psalm, that the, the righteous bear fruit to the end. 
the wicked are not so. They are just like the, the grass of the field that today is and tomorrow is gone. Even less than that, the grass that grows on, on the rooftop. And he's, he's, he's grasping his own life and its difficulties in a, a wholly new perspective now. And so the whole thing ends. And, and remember what I said a moment ago about the ironic blessing. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Remember how that happened in the, in the little book of Ruth? Boaz, good old Boaz, or middle-aged Boaz, or slightly older Boaz than Ruth. And as he passes by, you see there's this, there's this relationship between his workers and himself, and they greet one another. Bless you in the name of the Lord. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Actually, it's a beautiful picture of Christian fellowship, isn't it? You know, we, we may not know each other, but we, we meet one another. There is a sense that we belong to Christ, and we want to say, bless you in the name of the Lord, and we want whoever we bless to say in response, we bless you in the name of the Lord, because we are all living under the ironic benediction. Or as we've seen before, under our Aaron, Jesus Christ's benediction, in which He has been the one commanding us to be baptized into the blessing of the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But upon them, and this is the dark side, the way that they have chosen is the way of unblessing and not the way of blessing. Do you know what's interesting about this psalm? We don't know when it was written. But given the way in which he's looking back on the history of the sufferings of God's people, I wonder if it was actually written as, uh, for example, Psalm 137 was written, after the Babylonian exile. But after the Babylonian exile, the people of God already had the suffering servant songs of the second half of Isaiah. And some of those suffering servant songs reflect some of the language of this psalm how he gave his back to the smiters, uh, how uh, he seemed to enter into a world in which he was regarded as uh, barren and, and fruitless, who will declare his generation. And yet, even if the psalmist knew that, he doesn't, he doesn't say it. And I I, if I'm writing this psalm, I want him to say it, please give these people hope. But actually, you see, he, he does it in a quite different way. He simply sets before them two ways. There is the way that involves suffering, the way that Moses chose, choosing to suffer with Christ's people than to enjoy the riches of Egypt. And there is the way Pharaoh and the Egyptians chose, which was hatred of Yahweh 
the intimidation and oppression of his people. And then at the end, total disaster. Because from beginning to end of Scripture, there are only two ways. There's the way that leads to Christ, in whom, says Paul, we enjoy every spiritual blessing. And there are all the ways that take us from Christ, and they lead at the end of the day to disaster. And I wonder if he doesn't give us the third movement in his concerto, because that's the movement that runs through our lives. And he doesn't know how to compose that part of the concerto. In a sense, how that part of the concerto is composed is determined by the way we respond to the first two movements in the concerto. And whether or not we trust in Christ, who makes us more than conquerors and guarantees that nothing, not even this, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Him. Two ways. Blessing the unblessed. You blessed? Can we say to you, we bless you in the name of the Lord? Or would we have to say to you, are you tragically among those who are unblessed by the name of the Lord? Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he himself took our wounds, received the plowing due to our sins, and is held before us as the one in whom we are made more than conquerors. Pray for those among us who suffer oppression, that from your word we may learn how to place our lives within a larger and better frame that will help us to see that you are drawing us into longer-lasting purposes and providing for us deep-down grace that will enable us to live both in time and in eternity to the glory of our Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.